0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Housing Minister Sean Fraser to talk about the single most important issue in this country at the moment, housing affordability. The lack of housing affordability is a generational challenge. Young people are worse off than their parents. It is as simple as that. And it's also an economic productivity challenge. Young people aren't going to stay, live, and work here. They are leaving in significant numbers because they can't afford to stay, live, and work here and that has knock-on negative consequences for labor productivity and talent retention. Now, Sean is relatively new in the role, and it certainly seems as if he's been firing on all cylinders ever since taking it on. While we've seen steadily growing federal action on social housing and homelessness since 2015, we've seen more serious action in recent months to address restrictive zoning, waive GST on rental construction, and to get all kinds of housing built. Of course, we aren't the only ones talking about housing. All parties are, and Polyev has made Build the Homes one of his four relentless talking points. So, how does the Housing Minister stack up his plan as against the competition? What more can and should we be doing to get housing built? And how can we best communicate our plan of action when the scale of the challenge is so great and it takes time for new policies to be realized on the ground? Sean, thanks for joining me.
1: Pleasure to be with you.
0: I'm gonna start with uh, maybe a frustrating question for you, which is you look back at 2015 and we were the party for young people. And you wake up today and I don't think we are, at the moment at least, the party for young people and I think it's because of housing. And I hope this changes, I think it will change. But you have a situation where Pierre Poliev, for better and worse, has articulated an anger and frustration around housing unaffordability that we are matching now, but have failed to match for a time. Do you worry about losing that younger generation, whether it's millennials and younger, but just people who are incredibly mad about housing?
1: Uh, So I'll I'll frame it a slightly different way. I, I I don't worry about losing them. I worry about the actual challenges that they're living through. Like, Nate, you and I are not far removed from the demographic that you're talking about. Uh, I mean, my uh, my age still starts with a three for at least a few more months. Uh, but in all honesty, like, it doesn't take a rocket science to, scientist to figure out uh, that uh, an entire generation of people are, are frustrated. Um, when you look at the, uh, the cost of housing, when you look at the Uh, worsening climate crisis, Uh, when you look at uh, very serious affordability challenges impacting a group of people who were, in many instances, starting their career at a time when the world economy shut down, there's cause to be frustrated and there's cause to be anxious. Um, Where I think I'd I'd take a different view than you is, um, I, I do believe that we are the party for young people, uh, but we need to better uh, uh, reflect the real anxieties, not just in our policies, not just in our principles, uh, but in the way that we we talk about things. Uh, we need to spend more time uh, with the generation of, of people that we're talking about. Um, I, I, in my own spare time and in my professional life, uh, spend an awful lot of time talking to people that are younger than me. Um, the uncertainty and anxiety of people who are coming out of school, who are trying to find their first job, who are having their first kid and don't know how they're going to make rent is precisely the kind of problem that people look to governments to solve. Uh, The challenges uh, for you and I who've been in politics since 2015, uh, we know where they came from, but it's cold comfort to somebody who can't afford a house or or, or is panicked about that first job opportunity uh, that there's a reason why uh, the, the circumstances they're living through currently exist. They just want to know that you're working to solve it. And I think to the extent that we can improve, it's uh, demonstrating through both action and the way we talk about things uh, that we actually understand the problem, understand who specifically is living with these problems, and most importantly, are actually advancing solutions that address those anxieties. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist. Uh, My my view is when you actually put um, uh, competing visions for how we address those problems on the table, we will have a superior plan and a superior set of policies. Uh, When you're dealing with who can better capitalize on the anxieties and prey on the fears of young people, uh, I'll give it to the Conservatives. Uh, They they have really been working that angle. Uh, But what I don't see from them is uh, a set of solutions that will actually work for the problems that young people are speaking to me about. Uh, And I think um, with a a properly formulated plan, not just to address housing, but also to address housing, and uh, that actually reflects the life experience of a generation of people who are feeling uh, on the outside of the minds of uh, political decision makers. Uh, I think we can earn back
0: their support, but it's going to take work. It's going to take vision. Yeah. It's going to take engagement. And I think you're right to emphasize serious planning over cheap slogans. Having said that, I think there are two parts, and you, you articulated them, one is communicating the concerns that people rightly feel. And and that's where I think we have been slow in some ways to fully appreciate the maddening frustration of young people who are waking up and seeing home prices run away from them such that, you know, the house that I grew up in owned by two teachers, and there's no way two teachers could ever dream of affording that without major family help. I mean, I wasn't able to acquire a house in Toronto without family help and I make a salary better than most Canadians and so there's just this real frustration that I think we have to understand share and reflect back in some ways that it's a fairness challenge it's also an economic productivity challenge and and articulate this as the priority that it, it should be and I think you in fairness when you've come on the scene I think Certainly in my inbox, I've noticed a change in how people feel about the housing file federally, that they see you prioritizing this, they see the federal government prioritizing this in a more serious way, and then to your point, beyond communication, it's what's your plan? And what's the seriousness of your plan? So, I mean, let's get to some of the the plan as far as it goes, and let's start with gatekeepers, because I think that's, in some ways, a, a cheap attack that conservatives will bring to bear and the FCM just pushed back a little bit on Pierre saying we're not gatekeepers we're community builders. Having said that there's also a reality too you've got the housing task force in Ontario saying and exclusionary zoning. NIMBYism is a challenge to getting housing built and gatekeeping is real in some places. And how do you square the need to combat that simplistic approach while also recognizing the reality that we We've got to end exclusionary zoning across this country.
1: Um, so look, there's a, a, quite a few things that you raised in the uh, the question, both the preamble and the, and the standard question that I'll, I'll address if you don't mind. And look, we, we come at this from an interesting uh, uh, common understanding, uh, having both been raised in a household with two teachers or parents. Um, but when I uh, just on the, the issue, before I address the gatekeepers question and the need to end exclusionary zoning, um, On the sort of comms and and policy challenge that you have, you got to keep in mind that you can't communicate a bad policy well. You can't. People are too smart because they know their own life experience, and they're not going to be tricked by somebody with a silver tongue into believing that their life is good when their life is tough. Um, They uh, need to see that what you're pitching is going to work. Now you can com- communicate a good policy very poorly. Uh, I aim not to do that. Uh, <laughs> but, but why, why I think you've seen, uh, why I think you've seen a change in the nature of the uh, messages in your inbox, is because there has been a substantive change, not just in communications, but in policy. Uh, we have moved in a new direction, and it's important that people understand the nature of the d- direction that we've moved in, including on the issue of exclusionary zoning. Um, when we were elected in 2015. The focus on housing was disproportionately on affordable housing for low-income families. Uh, You will know this well, your audience may or may not, but this followed a period of about three decades of successive governments, both liberal and conservative, by the way, who chose not to invest in affordable housing. And over 30 years, we uh, ended up falling short by several hundred thousand units of what it would have taken to meet the need in affordable housing for low-income families. That was the right thing to do at the time. And we're starting to make progress. We need to make more. Where we've seen the last couple of years in particular as uh, properties were bought up during the pandemic when interest rates were low, at the same time we've seen um, the rising cost of labor, materials, supplies, land, interest you name it, it's more expensive. Uh, And suddenly you realize that the housing challenges that were felt acutely with low income families for many years, are now widespread across um, uh, middle income families as well. And young people are feeling the pinch because they're dealing with the simultaneous challenges of inflation, including inflation in home prices and uncertainty in the job market. uh, And a couple of years where the kickoff to their career or starting their family was filled with uncertainty during a, a global lockdowns. Um, the reason those email tones have shifted a bit, in my view, is because we're actually trying to address those concerns in addition to continuing to focus on affordable housing. Um, the kinds of policies that we adopt to do that, uh, finally getting to your actual question, uh, include uh, changing the way that that um, housing gets built in communities where uh, people live across income levels. Uh, it's not enough for us to meet the needs of um uh, young people by continuing to focus on exclusively on uh, affordable housing for low-income families when it might be somebody whose actual challenge is that they found a good job in a city where they can't afford to place uh, uh, find a place to live. They may have a, a decent income, as, as you pointed out, you do now, but still can't live in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, uh, even in my community of less than 10,000 people. In- County, Nova Scotia, we've seen home prices double as people from Ontario moved into my province during the pandemic in, in record numbers. So right across the country, across income levels, across geographies, uh, we've seen similar challenges when it comes to housing, and it's going to take a new policy approach to actually demonstrate to people that they, we deserve their support. One of the areas that we can improve things is by actually dealing with barriers that might not be traditionally viewed as a federal issue because it's uh, clearly in, in municipal jurisdiction uh, is changing the way the communities actually build homes. And despite the fact that might not be our uh, direct jurisdiction, we wanna help we're, we've created a, a new approach where we're actually saying, we're gonna put federal money on the table and use federal leadership to incentivize change at a community level to encourage municipal governments to increase their ambition in terms of the number of homes they wanna build and change the kinds of homes that are allowed to be built. The housing accelerator fund is is the marquee example here where we said, we'll put cash on the table for you to do things like speed up your permitting process so you can build homes more quickly, actually changing the zoning laws where we say uh, in a neighbourhood that's experiencing a housing crisis, we shouldn't prevent somebody who owns a piece of land from building a fourplex on it to provide homes for their neighbours. When we actually put this money in place and this policy in place, I have to say, It's dramatically exceeded very high expectations that I held for the fund. Uh, It started with uh, Josh Morgan in the city of London uh, in September, uh, where we sent a letter uh, saying, you've got a strong application, you have immense housing need, we want to help, but to justify this fund, you need to go further. And his response was the most encouraging thing you could imagine. Uh, He said on these two items, we didn't put it in part of our application because we're already going to do it, but we agree. On this last piece, moving to four units as of right citywide, we're going to do it because we see what you're trying to accomplish and that's going to help us in the housing crisis. And we want to do all the things that triggered a domino effect where a lot of other cities said, hey, the competition has become stiffer than it was uh, a couple of days ago. And we realized we have to increase our ambition too. And what we've seen over the past six months or so is the largest upzoning exercise that's happened in Canadian history And it's going to have an incredible impact, not just over the next three years, which is the life cycle of our agreements, uh, but for generations, because the changes that have been made are permanent and are going to have a positive impact for many years down the road. So uh, sorry about getting to your question in a roundabout. Does does it
0: frustrate you though? So uh, I have experienced some frustration when I see us pushing back against the language of gatekeepers, because I think. You know, it's true. There are gatekeepers, not in every municipality, but some municipalities, let's take Windsor as an example, more recently, they've refused to change their zoning rules and, and exclusionary zoning. Having said that, the frustration I experience is you've got conservatives that will say, and I'll quote, this is happening because Justin Trudeau subsidizes government gatekeepers and red tape that prevent shovels f- from getting in the ground. And that's absurd when you're talking about municipal zoning rules and ultimately municipalities that are creatures of the province. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, let's pit the provincial, or sorry, of the Poiliev plan as against your plan in some ways and our plan, where you've got the, you know, build the homes. Building, not bureaucracy, whatever he calls it, but it's basically really using a heavy stick. I mean, there are bonuses in there as well, but it's mostly a stick approach to say, We're going to punish you, municipality, if you don't build, I think 15% annually every year, compounding. It's pretty aggressive. And you've taken an approach quite successfully so far, which is here's a four billion dollar fund, a small fraction of the overall housing spend, and you've got I think now 40 municipalities that have all changed their zoning rules and upzoned, as you say, it, in response to that carrot approach. Do you see one approach working better than the other? Do you think there's a balance between the two, and how do you stack your our plan up against the sort of Polyev anti-bureaucracy plan?
1: So look you're, you're being generous in the way you're describing their plan. Um, <laughs> I'll, get, I'll, get, I'll, I'll get to their plan in a minute uh, because first I want to address your point on on gatekeepers. Um, some cities are incredible home builders, some are very bad at it. Uh, within some cities there are very progressive minded people who want to see more homes built and there are council members who do not want to see more homes built. Um, and, and, Oftentimes, in, in, I'm aware of some people in fact who personally share a very progressive view but don't believe that their district uh, would support the kind of density and are voting not with their, um, uh, their belief in the issue but their belief that they are a, a delegate of the people who sent them to that council. Uh, and it's, there's an interesting philosophical question about the role of an elected official as to whether you're a representative or a delegate there uh, and different people arrive at different conclusions. Uh, the advantage to the Housing Accelerator Fund, it's been the best possible way to identify the people who are willing to be community builders. And we've actually created a counterbalance to the narrative where the local councillor is now dealing with um, some residents organizations who don't want a, a fourplex on their block, uh, where they now are not saying you're either getting a building or you're not getting a building because people can be resistant to change, but you're getting a, 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 a potentially a, a fourplex in your community but the city's getting a lot of money to help with things you care about, Uh, or there will be no apartment, but we're not getting the money. And it's a legitimate policy choice. You mentioned uh, Windsor. I have no animosity or ill will toward uh, Mayor Dilkins. We've engaged on a number of different issues, both when I was in immigration, now in my current role. And um, uh, he and his council are free to take a decision about whether they want to end exclusionary zoning. Uh, I'm free to take a decision not to subsidize communities that don't want to make those changes. So this is no hard feelings, but we want to identify the cream of the crop uh, when it comes to our approach. Um, when I contrast it, and let's not pretend that our entire housing plan is the housing accelerator fund, by the way. If yeah, I can, exactly, yeah. I, if I can address for the moment, uh, the second part of your uh, your question on uh, the conservative plan, um, look at, at, at risk of, of uh, being too direct, um, Given the nature of the rhetoric that uh, Pierre Polyev was um, uh, using over the summer, uh, given the aggression with which they seem to be tackling the issue, uh, I was amazed at how bad their plan is. Uh, yeah, I agree. Ext- Completely agreed. Yeah, It's extremely weak. Uh, and it's extremely weak in a number of obvious ways. Um, first if you want to look at their... Um, uh, they, they actually they released their plan on the day that we announced the um, that we would be removing the GST for new apartment construction. Uh, what they've chosen to do was to only render it uh, uh, projects eligible uh, that are uh, below the market. Um, on first glance, I can understand why a person would think that would be reasonable if they have no experience or knowledge of how homes get built in a modern urban context in particular uh, but but more generally as they do today. Um, just to draw, draw that into focus, this is going to leave out most middle-class housing that's going to be built uh, going forward in Canada, because the metric that they're using isn't the average cost of something on the market, but the average cost of things that have already been in the market as well, which is typically lower than what a new building will offer. Moreover, most new developments uh, have a mix of uh, income levels within a building. And in order to make the math work for an individual project, a developers asking themselves, is this entire project going to work? If they don't have the ability to count on the GST waiver applying to the entirety of their project, um, those buildings aren't going to move forward. The only buildings that would move forward are ones that would be uh, exclusively for uh, uh, units below a certain uh, level. Uh, in order to benefit from the GST and the likelihood that the math would work even with the GST waiver if it's exclusively uh, rent below market is very slim. Um, The better kind of development in my view and what you're seeing more and more commonly is a building that will have 20% uh, of the units will be affordable where people who might come from a lower or modest income background can nevertheless live in the same neighbourhood or even the same building as somebody who might be living uh, with a job that allows them to pay market rent. It's healthier for everyone to live in mixed neighbourhoods, in my view, and the, the policy measure will actually yield more uh, housing units and supply is king right now. Uh, you got to build, 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 because even when you do build at or slightly above market, someone who moves into that is usually moving from a unit that was a little bit lower in price. And somebody who moves into that unit is moving from a place that was offered at a lower price still. And if you look at examples uh, in different parts of the world, Minneapolis is perhaps the best one. When you address the supply issue by making it easier to build homes, you do see a positive impact on the cost for everybody.
0: Yeah, it's got reverberating consequences as supply catches up to demand. There's no question about it. Absolutely. And and sorry to be long winded. But the
1: second piece that you really got to understand about the Conservative plan is what they're proposing to do on this issue of exclusionary zoning or, or changing the way that cities build homes is nonsensical. It's, uh, it flies in the face of logic and it's just bad policy that looks like somebody Googled housing policy for five minutes and wrote it on the back of a napkin. Um, instead of the housing accelerator fund, which they pledged to cut, uh, they want to create what they call a super fund. Uh, instead of a $4 billion fund, they want one hundred million dollars to go uh, to be spread out to cities across Canada. Um, we have individual housing project. You mentioned Windsor. Uh, um, Meadowbrook Place in Windsor is an affordable housing project that
0: cost more than one hundred million dollars to build one building. Toronto the cash- through the half is getting four hundred <laughs> so, and seventy one million dollars. I mean, come and on. The,
1: and, and the affordable this super fund, not only does it dramatically fail to understand the scale, it only applies to a couple dozen communities across yeah. the entire country so outside of halifax my province would be left out completely um if you're dealing with uh, the actual mechanics of the fund this is perhaps where it's most surprising the requirement that you increase um output by 15% each year is actually likely to punish the best actors oh yeah on- exactly
0: yeah it's like you're punished you're a victim of your own success how do you keep that pace going when you run down the list so you've got that 15% compounding, and by the way, we're not making this up. If you go to their plan, it says cities must increase the number of homes built by 15% each year, and then 15% on top of the previous target every single year, brackets, it com- It compounds. That's their words, not ours. So that's, that's just, I've never heard an expert or, or anyone in the development world suggest an idea like that. So I don't know where that comes from. They say they're gonna withhold transit and infrastructure funding from cities until sufficient high density housing around transit stations is built and occupied. Now, by the way, that initially sounds all right to say, we're not gonna deliver federal transit funds or federal housing funds until they're building proper density and affordability around transit hubs. Okay, but then they go on to say, cities will not receive money for transit until there are keys indoors. That that makes zero sense. (laughs) I don't even know how to make sense of that. Um, And then they've got basically from there, after those two big promises, and then the uh, super fund that you're talking about, uh, I mean, beyond that, what you're really looking at is uh, virtue signaling with a NIMBY penalty and removing GST on a smaller subset of buildings you just articulated than what we're already doing. Uh, So like, I mean, we're talking not quite back of the napkin, but pretty back of the napkin in comparison to a plan that they criticize, which is much more serious and credible, although I would say still insufficient, which I wanna get to.
1: Uh, So, look, you're you're absolutely right. And on the point of requiring sort of keys and doors to meet that completion schedule that they envision, not only are you punishing the best actors and rewarding the people who are willing to build one home this year, two next year, three the next year, those would be the biggest recipients under that proposed fund. But on the infrastructure piece, imagine a scenario where at the end of the year, uh, a developer who's got a nearly completed project is uh, sitting on a 90% complete building knowing the community is just a few units shy of meeting its targets and knowing that the federal government is going to fund or not fund infrastructure on the basis of whether the developer completes that project. You don't think that the development community would uh, consider extracting additional concessions from the municipality knowing that they've got them over a barrel because the federal money hangs in the balance. It's horrible policy that incentivizes the worst behavior. We should be putting policies in place that incentivize behaviours that are within the control of the group we're trying to incentivize that actually drive positive outcomes, about issuing more permits, about uh, uh, changing your zoning rules, about adopting new technology to do it faster, to do it better, the list goes on. Uh, so when you actually look at the policy, it's, it's not going to get more homes built. And the irony given the name that they're branding it with around um, build homes, not bureaucracy.
0: Yeah, it's more bureaucracy.
1: It's It's the CRA officials to to analyze the GST component, the folks who will be having to examine the 15% completions, the NIMBY snitch line so you can rat out your neighbors is going to require a bureaucrat on the other side of the phone. Uh, it's, It's nonsensical policy that will add a lot of bureaucracy and have a very, very limited impact. In fact, given the policies we've already put in place, their plan will result in fewer homes being built. Than we are already projected to build, given the policy track we're on, without any additional changes. Uh,
0: I want to move from the less than serious conservative plan, to put it charitably, to our mixed bag, I would say, of different policies that we put in place since 2015. You've, I'm, I was mentioning earlier to. Today, I'm no fan of the first home savings account. I know it's politically popular. I don't think it's the most efficient way to spend a dollar when it comes to housing. I'm certainly no fan of the first time home buyers incentive, which again, good politics potentially at one point, but I didn't see making a, a credible difference on the supply side, certainly, and just juicing demand. We've got the national housing strategy, which you've articulated at the hop here, was designed for a purpose, you know, needs changed as and policies changed accordingly. Uh, we do have major policies that I think have seen results and success. You've got the rapid housing initiative, $4 billion. There are real homes, people living in the ho- those homes because of it, hel- helping them to exit the shelter system. You've waived GST on rental construction to great fanfare, expanded low interest loans to colleges and universities, Increased the apartment construction loan program. You've got the half of, which is $4 billion, major zoning reform. You mentioned, I think uh, your staff telling me 40 municipalities, doubled reaching home to, to support uh, people experiencing homelessness still uh, I want to go through what more I mean let's uh, before we get to the more how do you articulate results of all that we've put in place you know you're there to say we've done a lot and people are going I don't feel it necessarily in my pocketbook and I don't feel it as I'm I'm looking at the market how do you articulate results in, in this difficult context uh,
1: so I th- thanks for the question uh, because it's really important to understand what you're aiming for if you're going to achieve success my goal is not to beat an unserious conservative plan. My my goal is to put Canada on a track to solve the housing crisis. Um, this means that if you're somebody who's renting right now and you have to move for whatever reason, you should be able to find another place in the city that you want to live in at the price that you're currently paying. Uh, If you work in Canada, uh, you should be able to afford a place to live. That might be a place to rent, that might be a place to buy. You should be able to live in the community where you want to live in, in the community where you can find a job. Uh, There should not be people who go to sleep without a roof over their head in a country as wealthy as Canada. Um, These things I know will not be achieved 100% in the next number of weeks, in the next number of months. Most of these uh, systemic challenges will take years to fully address. But we can achieve progress in the, in the short term and we can put ourselves on a track where in a reasonable period of time uh, somebody who's in their uh, mid-20s has graduated from college or university, who's got their first job, who's starting their family, whatever it might be, actually sees an ability for themselves to live where they want to live in a home that, that provides a safe place for their family and a chance to work in the job that they can find. Um, Those are the kinds of things I think about when I'm trying to define success. Um, If you're a senior, you should be able to age in the community where your grandkids are being raised. Uh, If you're a parent, you should not have to be concerned about uh, the cost of uh, diapers and groceries because your rent or mortgage is too high. Uh, And if you do lose a a place that you're living in, you've got to be able to find an alternative at the same price you're paying paying for. Um, So figuring out how to do that is is a real challenge. the thing that I take some comfort in is when you start to dig in on the problems, though they are big problems, they're not particularly complicated. Uh, The the first piece is really on, are we going to allow the market to build the supply we need or people who can afford to live in the market uh, to to have prices offered at a a reasonable rate. Um, If we're going to do that, you got to realize that the total cost of addressing the housing need is a multi-trillion dollar cost. The government alone is never going to spend its way out of a multi-trillion dollar program. Uh, Given the the size of Canada's economy, it's not reasonable at all to to think that's going to be the solution. We need to engage the private sector for market housing. We'll get to non-market in a minute because we need to continue to do a lot more on that space. Um, For market-based housing, we have to make it worthwhile for the uh, home builders to to build homes. Uh, That's why we removed the GST. Uh, In a high interest environment, uh, building is going to slow if you don't take action. Uh, We didn't just remove the GST. We also uh, got more capital into the market by topping up the Canada mortgage bond program, which is leading to uh, more competitive rates through financial institutions. We've also expanded to the tune of $15 billion, the apartment construction loan program which is providing the best money in the market to people who are going to build homes, but offer a certain number of units at and below the price that the market would bear. So we're getting some affordability, not affordable for low income families in that instance, but more affordable than the market. Uh, and we're also uh, adopting new measures that you've, you've outlined, including expanding these programs to student housing, for example. There's a few other measures that we don't need to get into too deeply. Um, after we realize we make the math work, we do have to change the way that cities build homes. And it might mean that some communities look a little bit different than they did before, but not dramatically. It might mean that there's a fourplex where there used to be single family homes every once in a while. Uh, It might mean that we make big investments in transit, but insist that you can build apartments near transit. Uh, It might mean that around university and college campuses, you're gonna see uh, more apartments for students to live in. And you gotta realize the alternative to that is that young people are gonna be priced out of your city forever. But even if we have a perfect policy track on um, making the math work for builders and on changing how cities build homes, we are going to run into a bottleneck with the uh, productive capacity of the Canadian workforce to build homes. We're almost there now. Um, We need to train more workers. We need to bring in the specialized skills for home builders that cannot find the talent they need in Canada. And we need to incentivize home building and factories. Um, If we continue to build homes uh, the way we typically have for most of the past century. Uh, we can increase scale, but we cannot achieve the scale we need to meet the supply gap that Canada is dealing with. Uh, you should expect to see additional measures that target each of these pieces on the industrial capacity. And all of these measures is just to deal with market homes. We, in addition to dealing with the market need to dramatically step up the investments in affordable housing. We, we are back in the space. We will remain in the space as long as we are in government. Uh, but this is to make sure that we're actually ensuring everybody in the community has a, a safe place to live. Uh, if you don't have affordable housing, you will have homelessness problems in your community. There will always be people who can't afford to live in the market. Canada has a little less than 4% of our housing stock. Is uh, a non market, is owned by nonprofits, is owned by a level of government, et cetera. Uh, the average in OECD countries, for what it's worth, is about 8%. We're less than half of the average for developed economies in the world, and we need to do better. We can do that by investing directly in affordable housing, investing in cooperative housing, and making sure we're working with the nonprofit providers that are providing the kind of housing that we need. And we can't forget certain groups that we have a unique responsibility to meet the needs of both morally and jurisdictionally, including housing for veterans, including uh, housing for Indigenous uh, peoples on and off reserve. Uh, We have developed programs to address each of these unique needs and more, and by actually understanding the nature of the problems we're trying to solve, we can adopt a policy framework that will address the specific needs and overcome some of the challenges that have um, uh, been facing Canadians.
0: So I, I like how when you were talking about how you articulate success, you're giving Stories. Now, you're not saying, well, it's X number of units built. I mean, there are targets you got to meet on that front. CNHC has some pretty, you know, <laughs> live targets that we're very far from if we're being honest with ourselves. And there's a lot more to, to even come close to that. But just the real life, this is how I want to affect real people's lives and meet people where they're at, I think is an important way to, to articulate success as well, especially in politics. Uh, I think part of articulating success is also being honest with people and saying, we can't fix this overnight and no level of government can fix this on their own. We are going to do everything we can in our jurisdiction and here's all that we're doing and here's all that we're going to do. And so you've articulated a bunch that we're doing. Let's talk about the what we should do over and above that. I, I wanna first pick up on the housing accelerator fund. I don't wanna dwell on it, but you know, conservatives attacked it. The half isn't building homes. It's gotten a homes bill, $4 billion, where are the homes? My complaint is different because I think zoning reform is massively important to actually getting homes built. But you are jumping from municipality to municipality and, and it's good politics in its own way. It allows you to, to push different municipalities and, and use that carrot approach quite successfully actually. You said it's you know more successful than even the high expectations you set for yourself. BC though, with I'll say a stroke of a pen change zoning rules across their province you've got a provincial government here in ontario the largest province in this country their own housing task force recommended ending exclusionary zoning across the board four plexes as of right greater density near transit much greater density obviously near transit hubs they've not done you know they've distracted us with different things and i don't know what your relationship is with the provincial government ontario i've been you know i've i have a bias i ran in a leadership to ultimately displace them but Did you really <laughs> you might have heard i came pretty close <laughs> um, but uh but having said that they are pushing you effectively to go municipality municipality in ontario they could fix this all at once and if you were to rethink the half or you were to get more money through a vehicle like that do you think it would be successful or more successful to direct it at provinces as opposed to municipalities
1: Um, There are things we can direct to provinces that would would drive that kind of success, but I don't know that it's it's an either or it's one where I think different incentives can motivate change for different levels of government. Um, What BC did was uh, a remarkable act of um, uh, decisiveness uh, when it came to uh, addressing the problem with everything that they have uh, from a legislative point of view. So a lot of the upzoning uh, that we've seen, uh, it could be done uh, through provincial legislation. Um, knowing that we don't have the jurisdiction uh, to uh, change zoning rules through a legislative option as, as a federal government, uh, we nevertheless decided that we weren't gonna sit on the sidelines. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I don't regret for one moment, uh, targeting uh, the, the opportunity staring us in the face when it came to working directly with cities. The irony that I've seen is different provinces across Canada, um, ironically not British Columbia, but uh, but others, have been very critical that we deal directly with cities. And uh, I, I remember uh, one of the uh, the mayors um, uh, who's engaged with FCM joked with me, he said, Sean, uh, the, are the provinces calling you and saying, uh, how dare you fund uh, cities to do the things we were never going to fund them
0: to do? <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, now one challenge, though, in fairness is uh, you've got these agreements with municipalities, but because we municipalities are creatures of the province, they're not creatures of the feds, how are you going to effectively monitor the municipalities to meet their commitments on whether it's zoning reform, faster permitting, hiring new staff? What happens in a situation where they overpromise and under-deliver on implementing reform?
1: We have binding agreements with every uh, municipality that has received funding under the housing accelerator fund. Uh, In most cases, uh, a 25% uh, tranche of the the funding is uh, delivered upon finalization of the agreement. But the remaining installments are released uh, one year, uh, one, two, and three years after the agreement's reached based on milestones actually being achieved. So we have the opportunity to protect the investment that we're making, or redirect it to more ambitious communities. If someone uh, decides to, um, it's less likely that somebody pulls a wool over our eyes. But pr- imagine uh, there's a municipal election uh, two sure. years into these agreements, and, and someone is elected uh, on a uh, platform to say, I-, "I don't like the path we're going down on density." We're protected, and we can get our uh, uh, the, the federal money we've invested back as a result of the protections we put in place. Um, On the issue though of of other provinces, there is more we can do and more we are working to do. Uh, We have other funds that run through provincial governments like the Canada Community Building Fund and are actively negotiating right now with provinces to extract greater home building commitments out of them. So we don't just have uh, an annual transfer of funds and see very little in in return as a result. Uh, When it comes to the next round of transit funding through our permanent public transit funding, we're not going to be signing deals with anybody that doesn't allow for a much greater level of density within walking distance transit stations so we have other tools in the toolbox that we are deploying in real time uh, and we can deal with provincial governments at the same time as we deal with cities but uh, for those who, who aren't aware of this uh, there is a lot provincial governments can do that does not cost the taxpayer a thing if they adopt new legislative measures to require municipalities to move more uh, towards a, a additional density um, that doesn't have to fundamentally change the character of communities, but has to make it easier to build behind of homes that will solve the housing. Barrier.
0: Yeah, as I said, you know, I said this repeatedly, as you do in politics, until you, you know, you realize you're saying the same thing everywhere, and you get a bit sick of it. But it's gentle density everywhere, and greater density near transit and and universities and colleges. Uh, okay, so. What more we need to do? We've got certain programs that are working successfully, other programs that could probably be tweaked. Let's let's start with, you've you've mused on this, and you know, I hope to see this realized in, in the budget. This is gonna be a housing budget from all indications, so there is more we're gonna see. But rethinking government-owned land. And there are two parts to this. You know, there's a push from some folks just around certain portfolios like Canada Post Land Portfolio and unlocking that. There's another question though, which is around Mandatory affordable housing requirements on federal lands, through Canada Lands. So take Downsview as an example. So have you? We, we, there's two parts to it. Like, how do we unlock federal lands? Paul Yev said he's just going to sell a bunch off. But how do we unlock federal lands on the one hand, and then two, how do we not just sell it off, but how do we secure, say, 20% to 30% affordability commitments?
1: Uh, so, look, great great question. There's a massive opportunity here and land is such a huge component of the cost, particularly in large urban centres, uh, of building new homes that it's one of the biggest things that we can do to actually reduce the, the price that the resident pays uh, for rent at the end of the day. Um, for what it's worth, although there are, there are federal lands that make great sense to dispose of because we literally do not have a use or, or want to own the property anymore that are also appropriate for housing. In those scenarios, it may make sense to dispose of a piece of federal land. Announcing a fire sale where you're going to unload thousands of federal properties, presumably to your developer friends who are going to score a win. Uh, is Where have I heard that before? <laughs> it's not a recipe for success, um, particularly when there's no affordability requirements. Uh, you're essentially uh, giving an enormous value. Uh, if your goal is to collect more money for the government, I suppose it could serve that end if you get a good purchase price. But if you're trying to build affordable housing, uh, it makes no sense to sell the land uh, unless it's land you were going to sell anyway, in which case you should still put affordability requirements on it. Uh, but we, we need to be exploring uh, new ways to potentially retain ownership of land uh, that will uh, allow us to for next to nothing provide access to that property for somebody to build on the property. This is the kind of thing that will reduce the input cost on land that will translate into lower prices that people actually pay because it's a lot less costly to build the building in the first place. Yeah. There are a lot of pieces of land in the queue right now that have been declared surplus. We should get those out the door and we should continue to use the federal lands initiative to guarantee affordability. And we should on the Canada lands company lands that are going to be disposed anyway, insist on minimum criteria and credit to Jean-Yves Duclos, who actually has increased that threshold to 30% on federal lands with a recent uh, policy change Uh, going forward forward, uh, if we are able to, to develop a mechanism that allows us to retain ownership, uh, that opens up the possibility not just of dealing with lands that have been declared surplus but lands that are actively being used by the government but have the capacity to build housing that's not incompatible with the use of that land. So Canada Post certainly provides an example. Uh, Department of National Defence has armories that uh, could, could accommodate housing on top. Um, Canada Food Inspection Agency may have, um, they do have buildings. Uh, There's one in Nova Scotia I'm aware of uh, where they have an office, but land uh, behind it, that could potentially accommodate uh, a small apartment building. Uh, I don't mean to single out any one of these uh, Crown, Forbes or departments. We should be looking across the entire portfolio and we should be working with provinces and municipalities to do it in an organized way so we can leverage their lands as well uh, in a similar fashion that will reduce the input costs and lead to lower prices that people actually pay at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, that's right, doing it as a, as a block as opposed to the one-offs and, and being a bit more thoughtful and strategic about it. I would say also, as you negotiate with provinces and secure commitments back, I have an ex- you mentioned an example in your riding, an example in my riding, uh, go, go area lands, Go transit sells it off. Zero affordability comes back. And this is land tens of millions of dollars comes back into provincial coffers, but we get no affordability commitments despite the fact that that land is walkable to go and walkable to TTC. It's just like blue mo- it, 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 there's no again, you get a government that says we care about affordable or attainable and unable to define what attainable means. But they articulate this concern about housing, but their actions belie their words. and, any way we can set them on the right track through negotiations and carrots or sticks would be, would be welcome. Okay, so this is not in your portfolio directly, but it is obviously in your portfolio as it relates to housing. But CMHC sits not directly under you, but it's it's under finance. And you need to look at it and say, we need to simplify and speed up CMHC funding requests. Too, too many examples of slow funding requests. And then my own experience is, they take a quite a passive approach to housing. So you, you look at legions or churches, those with land but no real housing capacity. I think it would be wonderful. I don't know what it would cost, $2 million, $5 million, some amount of money through CMHC, or maybe they got enough money to begin with, but they've got to take a much more proactive approach to unlocking Public interested public interest lands, not not public owned lands, but lands that are owned by churches, charities, nonprofits, legions that want to unlock it for social purposes, but just don't have the capacity to 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 really par- build the housing themselves.
1: Uh, look, it's it's fu- funny we should be having this conversation today. Uh, th- this morning we announced. Um, uh, eight awards underneath the Affordable Housing Innovation Fund that includes one organization that has properties across Canada uh, that are uh, religious buildings that are going to be converted into housing options. Uh, it, it is a CMHC administered program, ironically, given the preamble to your question. <laughs>
0: okay, I forgive them a little bit
1: then. <laughs> yeah, so, but but I think here's here's one of the the challenges that we have recognized and are working towards through now. Um, CMHC is a crown corporation whose primary function is to provide mortgage insurance and in the case of the apartment construction loan program uh, to finance uh, the construction of buildings and uh, with our our various affordable housing programs to provide grants to projects. Um, CMHC uh, is an arm's length organization. It may report to a combination of me and the finance minister, uh, but uh, the policy function is something that the government of Canada uh, proper within the department has not uh, previously had control over. Um, we changed that and, and the recent fall economic statement, the implementing legislation actually moves the policy function from CMHC to Infrastructure Canada, now Housing and Infrastructure Canada, uh, Housing, Infrastructure and Communities Canada. I should know the name of my own department. Um, the, uh, the opportunities that this is going to create is going to uh, provide a new way for us to address these social opportunities that we see. Uh, That previously may have escaped the the primary function of CMHC, not because they're not creative, not because they're not good at policy, but because they operate uh, for a different purpose and a different different sphere than than elected officials do. Um, One of the challenges that I see that's uh, endemic to governments of all kinds at every level, regardless of party, in, in different countries as well, when you build a system. Uh, over time, the uh, the departments, the agencies, the Crown Corps that, that adopt different practices have a tendency to more and more uh, operate in a way that's designed to benefit the people who administer the system rather than the people who rely on the system. If we can have a change with this policy function moving into Infrastructure Canada, it allows the, the political function of people like you and me uh, to really flourish because we're talking to the people who have housing needs Uh, we're going to be able to explore new kinds of ideas, uh, try things that might take a little bit of political courage. Um, When you have a systems change that that creates an opportunity for you to do things differently, rather than to just scale what you're already doing, uh, you really can have a profound impact. And I think the idea that you pitched around um, community buildings that are of the public interest, but maybe not publicly owned, uh, creates a unique opportunity for us. And, And a lot of these organizations, are actually struggling for uh, for cash uh, yeah. to operate, whether it's legions, whether it's uh, religious organizations or whether it's a nonprofit who owns a community building. Um, these are organizations who um, we could partner with uh, to develop uh, housing opportunities and potentially even revenue models uh, with, uh, with groups that didn't realize they were sitting on a gold mine, uh, given the opportunity to
0: build housing where there is uh, a limited supply. Yeah, and to further meet their mandate, you take a legion, for example, I got four legions in my riding. One did sell their property. They got over $10 million vendor take back. They've got their main space and it's gonna be housing. Unfortunately though, it isn't exactly as they would envisioned it initially. There's not gonna be veteran's housing. There's not gonna be seniors housing. There's not gonna be affordable housing above them. And that was really a capacity question that, had they had someone from VAC, someone from CMHC, someone from your department, sit down with them and say, this is, these are projects that have existed in other parts of the, the country, here's who we can partner with, here are developers that can do this for you or that for you, it would have gone a long way and they probably would have got more out of that project. Now, there are many other opportunities, that's just one, so there are many opportunities going forward, but we, we do have to seize them when we can. Uh, in the interest of time, I'd be interested in just jamming through a few other things. You know, rental construction, GST's waived, you know, Mike Moffat and crew have called for low-cost, long-term, fixed-rate financing for non-market and purpose-built rental housing. I assume that's one of your pushes in in the coming budget. Well,
1: Nate, you can't put me on the spot. <laughs> it's, um, uh, look, th- there's there's a lot of additional policies that we're we're trying to uh, uh, think through and and to implement. Uh, the, they're not all done, and, and I, I don't want to uh, get too far ahead of myself. Obviously. Uh, Given the fiscal, you don't want to
0: be let down.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like when when you work in uh, when you work in government and politics, you you experience the positives and you experience being let down too. Uh, (laughs) uh, Long story short, uh, uh, Mike Moffat and company have been um, very useful in their public commentary and their private advice to me. They pick up the phone when I call. Okay. Uh, and it, uh, it, it's really helpful to get uh, get the level of expertise. Uh, but those are those are the kinds of things that we're we're examining yep. for uh, for future policies. But uh, but but there's more to it than what you've just enumerated.
0: And in terms of, I mean, I, I want to dwell on the budget a little bit. I mean, you've got uh, more to be done on the rental construction side. Although you noted fifteen billion dollar expansion already on the apartment construction. So so a lot is being done on that side. You've got potential support for municipal and nonprofit property acquisition funds. Uh, We could do more, I think, on the financialization of housing, especially as it relates to different stress tests the way New Zealand's done, but I've tried that before and haven't been successful. Uh, RHI's been quite successful, I think. We've got three rounds behind us. Uh, There's a push from some to say, we should have RHI4 to deal with encampments. That strikes me as a, you know, replace encampments with real homes, strikes me as a very positive message to a lot of different quarters. Uh, You've already dealt with student housing. Um, although we need more student housing built, but you've got at least the, the financing there. You mentioned social housing. I wanna, I wanna you know finish with the more we can do here. Canada's social housing, you mentioned, is half of the OECD average. You've got a situation where the housing accelerator is great, but certain communities, especially rural and northern communities, where, you know take northern communities in particular, you talk to folks at the Cochrane DSAB and they say, they say in Timmins, we don't have a problem with NIMBYism, except maybe as it relates to NIMBYism for a safe consumption site. We, we, our issue is developers aren't banging down the door to build. We've got land, we need someone to come and build, and that's gonna take dollars. And so when you talk about big dollars for social housing and getting, you know, we're back in the game, but we need to back in the game in a more serious way when you look at how Canada compares to our peer countries. Do you look at what can be done in, cities, but also how dollars can go even further in rural and Northern communities to get housing built and social housing built?
1: Uh, yeah, so look, it, interesting example you picked, uh, my, my sister lives in Timmins. Uh, I've, I've been a number of times, great community, uh, and, and you're, you're right, but it, it takes cash. Uh, there, there are opportunities in small towns and rural communities, and in fact, uh, through the Housing Accelerator Fund, uh, we've signed 60 deals just with small communities. Uh, for the purpose of maximizing the advantage for these communities, where it's typically cheaper to build, labor costs are usually a bit lower, or land costs are almost always lower, and uh, you you tend to have access to the services that you need in those uh, uh, those hubs. But but it does take a lot of cash. Um, so the answer is yes, we're targeting some of those communities, not exclusively, but but also targeting those communities. Uh, but you just have to decide: are you going to make a commitment to do this or not? And you have to consider the the uh, not just the, the cost of making the investment, but the cost of not making the investment. Uh, Nate, if we had continued to fund affordable housing projects uh, the way we did up until the late 80s, early 90s, when we saw re- more dramatic cuts, we would not have homelessness challenges in Canada or encampments the way that we do today. Yeah, And we have to realize that a decision to walk away from investing in affordable housing is a decision to have homelessness be part of our communities 20 years from now. I'm not okay with that. Uh, we need to increase the uh, uh, public spend on affordable housing or, or maintain, I should say, affordable housing investments over a, a lengthy period of time. But we also need to figure out what incentives we can put in place to attract new sources of capital. The, the challenge is so grand. Uh, we can't count on government solving it alone. But when it comes to homelessness, I, I don't think there's a market solution out there. Uh, I think there are uh, uh, public policy solutions and just to draw um, uh, focus into what this means for people, uh, with the rising cost of living we've seen over the couple of years, the very human experience people are having will break your heart. Um, I've got a, a, a woman approached me in my community at the grocery store. Who said that she won't bring her kids to the grocery store anymore. and The reason why is because she doesn't want to be in a position where her kid is the cash register when the cashier tells her she doesn't have enough in her account to pay for what's in her cart. And she wants to spare her child the embarrassment of walking a box of Cheerios back to the shelf. Um, Somebody in that situation deserves to have a place that they can afford to pay the rent. And when we think about these challenges, although it's helpful to understand where we sit relative to the OECD average, we can't forget it's not about... Uh, comparing ourselves to uh, Nordic countries that are virtually eliminating homelessness, it's about taking lessons from them so the people who live in our communities have fulfilling lives uh, where they feel that the quality of life they live is worth living. And if we can actually commit ourselves to the policy solutions and public investments that will solve these problems, uh, then I think we can uh, properly assess the cost of doing it versus the cost of not doing it. Uh, But from my perspective, uh, we need to lock in long term predictable sources of public funding for affordable housing. It may be technically provincial responsibility, uh, but we want to help and uh, we can
0: help by putting money on the table. And you've articulated the need for the federal government to get in the game in a serious way to, you know, to stay in the game. You've articulated the challenges of successive governments walking away. I mean at a high level the challenge today is a simple one as you as you said earlier on which is you know it's really one of supply and demand and supply hasn't kept pace with demand now you were the immigration minister you're now the housing minister do you worry about a fraying or faltering consensus around immigration because of housing and how do you look at the immigration targets that we've got? And obviously, there's some action now on international students. Temporary foreign workers has also been a, a big driver of, of non-resident uh, immigration. But how do you square the need for more immigration that we've got? but the need for more housing, which is incredibly pressing. And if we don't manage those conversations successively in a serious way, that we undermine what has been a longstanding consensus around being a really welcoming country. Uh,
1: Yes, so I I think that Canadians remain uh, welcoming towards newcomers, but uh, we as a a nation are, are collectively experiencing Uh, a degree of scarcity that's driven not just by population growth, but by uh, the rising cost of things. Uh, The housing challenges that we're dealing with now are more reflected uh, in the lack of investment in affordable housing for 30 years, the rising cost of interest, land, supplies, labor, uh, etc. One of the things that we need to uh, ask ourselves is do we want to benefit from being a high growth country? Um, That's going to demand, given uh, our uh, fertility rates in Canada, uh, that we continue to welcome people who have the skills we need. Uh, A third of the doctors in this country are are newcomers, a quarter of the nurses in this country are newcomers. Uh, Fifty years ago, there were seven workers for every retired person who were paying into the programs to support a dignified retirement. Uh, Today that number is closer to three. In, In my part of the country, that number is closer to two. Uh, the demographic time bomb we are sitting on if we don't embrace smart immigration policies is going to uh, uh, further exacerbate the, uh, the challenges that people are experiencing around the cost of living, particularly when you're dealing with people who rely on programs to uh, build affordable housing, to support their retirement, to support them in the cost of raising a family like the Canada Child Benefit, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, you understand the argument. Um, so I, our job is to uh, say, let's be responsible with immigration, but I don't think the challenge is uh, tied as much to our, our permanent residency targets. Uh, you, we can build um, about uh, between 200 and 250,000 homes annually right now, we can dramatically scale that number up, but, but that's roughly enough to cover the, uh, uh, the, the permanent residency numbers uh, that we welcome each year. Where we have unique challenges in our immigration system that have put pressure on communities, particularly around housing to uh, a certain degree, healthcare as well, uh, is a, an enormous increase in the number of temporary residents who don't come in through programs where the federal government sets a, a, uh, an official level, but they come in through programs that are responsive to demand. Uh, look at the international student program, uh, for example. We have seen institutions in this country uh, increase by tens of thousands of people year over year over year, the number of people who are, are coming in without providing any support for them to find a place to live. If you have 30,000 international students who receive study permits at Conestoga, that's going to put pressure on the housing market in that community. Uh, in my view, if colleges and universities are going to benefit from uh, the higher tuition those students pay, they. Uh, Have a a unique responsibility to ensure those students are set up for success. Um, I've worked with uh, Minister Miller to discuss the need to address this issue and he's moved uh, fairly aggressively to tamp down on the explosive growth the program has seen not because the federal government uh, chose to expand the numbers but because colleges and universities have uh, continued to accept more and more uh, and, and provincial governments frankly have not dealt with the issue of who gets to be on that list of designated institutions that can participate in the program. Uh, In the absence of uh, controls put in place at an institutional provincial level, uh, we decided to make a move in that space. And and
0: it's worth noting, uh, because uh, you're maybe generously (laughs) suggesting this is a, a consistent problem across all provinces, Ontario is by far the worst offender, I'm just writing on this right now. Public colleges in Ontario represent 40% of all of the study permits across this country. And you mentioned Conestoga, I mean, you look at the rapid growth across different colleges, it is unsustainable. It is born out of the fact that Ontario in particular, they fund in order for them to catch up to the same level of post-secondary funding as other provinces on average, it would take $7.1 billion a year. They have so woefully underfunded that sector. And by freezing effectively austerity for the post-secondary education sector, plus a tuition freeze after a 10% cut, where are these institutions to go but rely upon international students to fund their growing expenses? And that's exactly what's happened. So it is a unique, not uniquely Ontario problem. It's just an especially uh, especially an Ontario problem given just the the dire straits Ontario finds itself in on, on this front. Um, okay, I want to end on an optimistic note. You, you say you're an internal optimist. So CMHC estimates Canada needs to build 3.5 million additional homes beyond what is already projected by 2030 to restore affordability, whatever that means. And this number may well rise even more depending upon immigration targets. So you mentioned 200 to 250,000 units. We can scale that up massively. How does the federal government able to meet these aggressive and 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 realistic, you know, realistic given the scale of the problem, but but challenging given the, you know, the, our current pace of building? How do you maintain that eternal optimism in the face of high interest rates, more expensive building materials, acute labor shortages? Do you think we can do what we need to do in the end here?
1: So yeah, it it depends on where where the end is. Uh, (laughs) So look, the 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 supply gap report that CMHC put out uh, identifies what would be an extraordinarily ambitious uh, target by anyone's metric. Yes. Uh, Keep in mind, right now, um, with the exception of a few years in the nineteen seventies where there was an enormous housing boom, Canada is building as many homes annually. As we ever have, uh, with that limited exception in the '70s, and we're we're actually not that far off that record-setting level. Uh, but up until we formed government in 2015, uh, Canada was building fewer than 200,000 homes every year. Uh, we've been in excess of 200,000 consistently, consistently, consistently since we formed government and increasing generally uh, uh, over the last number of years. Um, so I, I think we can continue to increase, and I think we can increase the rate of that increase each year. Um, So that doesn't mean that Everyone in Canada is going to be paying an affordable price for rent or living in the home of their dreams uh, by 2030. Uh, But it means it can be better in 2030 than it is now, and it means this can be an issue that we're not discussing as a political challenge uh, in the next uh, uh, for for the next generation of Canadians. Um, I I sincerely believe that we actually can solve the housing crisis. We can make it better over the next couple of years, but over the next uh, uh, decade or more we can solve it. And if we don't set our sight on actually fixing the problem, then we will have failed from the outset. So, is it going to be exactly three and a half million uh, over the next number of years? Uh, When I look at the trajectory that would need to put us on, um, it's hard to say until we've got the policy track that'll get us there that that's likely or or even realistic. Uh, But it's not out of the question to think that we could double the pace of home building, and with every additional unit that comes on, we get closer to restoring that level of affordability. Uh, But by the way, that that is the the measure outlined in the CMHC uh, supply gap report would restore a level of affordability that existed uh, more than 20 years ago. Um, Canada really decoupled from the international community uh, after the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Uh, it may not take three and a half million additional homes in order to uh, get back to where the world community uh, parted with Canada on this chart. Uh, so it depends on what your metric is for success. Uh, but I think in the next couple of years, uh, we can uh, make it more affordable than it is today. Uh, but i think over the course uh, of the next w- couple of years we can put canada on a track to permanently solve the housing crisis uh, over the uh, for, for the next generation of canadians
0: i appreciate the generosity uh with your time and i i especially appreciate just from uh i respect communications and politics i get fra- you know as much as we rightly dunk on the lack of seriousness of polyev's plan I, I do respect the game and you know, he's got people popping up every day saying build the homes, that, that messaging has been successful. Obviously you know, we had to combat that and you've I think successfully combated that to a serious degree and I think the game now as you articulate it rightly is we've got to make sure we not only message it correctly, communicate what we're doing in a serious way that we are taking it seriously but also have serious plans to back it up. But I, 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 I will say just from uh, you know, watching the politics of it all, it did look like a bit of a sinking ship on this file until you started steering us so i, I appreciate your work and I, I look forward to helping you maybe realize even more of this in in, in this coming budget so appreciate the time and appreciate your work sean now thanks so
1: much nate i appreciate it uh, let, let's just keep in mind uh, when we're talking about uh, comms and politics it's not about our opponents uh, it's about our neighbors and if we keep them in mind uh, uh we can
0: advance the right policies the community For joining me on this episode. It's hard to think of a better communicator than Sean around the current cabinet table. He brings a serious policy focus as well, and he's of the right age to understand the challenges too many young people face to access the housing market. He's also gone toe-to-toe with Polyev more than anyone else in the House of Commons since 2015. Speaking of Polyev, to his credit, he's shown an appropriate level of outrage on housing, I think. But, Having just insulted expert Mike Moffat in the House of Commons as a failed liberal academic and with a housing plan that could have been written on the back of a napkin, he is not exactly matching that outrage with the seriousness that we deserve on such an important file. And if he can't manage to improve what we've seen so far, it's hard to see how build the homes will be anything more than a slogan. As always, reach out anytime with questions or ideas for future episodes. I'm going to be joined by Minister Wilkinson and Gilbo in the next week or two, so look out for those. And otherwise, until next time.